I'm Melanie Ho, author of Beyond Leaning In, Gender Equity and What Organizations Are Up Against. It's a different kind of business book based in research, but told as a novel and designed to spark discussion and change about gender equity in the workplace. Thank you for joining this discussion as my co-host Carla Hickman and I talk about the challenges that women continue to face at work that are too often only discussed behind closed doors. Today, I'm excited that we're going to speak with my good friend, Dr. Hong Depp. She is a board-certified psychologist who specializes in global mental health and, in particular, works with BIPOC and LGBTQ communities. I was really fortunate to be able to bounce ideas off her as I was working on Beyond Leaning In. And one concept we talked a lot about that you'll see throughout the book is what Hong calls mental chatter. And that's about the inner narrative that all of us have in our heads across the day when we're trying to interpret everything going on in the world around us in parallel to whatever we're doing and saying at the time. Now, that happens to everyone, but in the book, we really look a lot at what that means for women in particular. And so after we hear this excerpt about mental chatter, Hong and I will discuss a few things. First, how common it is. Second, why women and people of color have an extra layer of mental chatter due to the biases that we face. Third, how mental chatter connects to imposter syndrome. And finally, and I'm really excited about this, how as a therapist, Hong helps her clients recognize mental chatter and combat its negative effects. Well, today we're going to hear another excerpt from Beyond Leaning In. As always, it is narrated by Brittany Goodwin. And I want to remind everyone that all versions of Beyond Leaning In are now available on Amazon or on www.beyondleaningin.com. We have the audiobook where you can hear this great excerpt narrated by Brittany. You can also, of course, purchase the full book or the ebook version. Today's excerpt, we return to Amber, who is a senior leader in our fictional company, and she's attending a neighborhood barbecue with lots of friends and folks from her community. We're going to eavesdrop on one of the conversations that take place. And this conversation is a great example of how mental chatter is not only in the workplace, but in those everyday conversations that we find ourselves having. So enjoy the excerpt, and Melanie and I'll be back with you at the end. That evening, Amber attended a barbecue held by one of her neighbors. Did you see that thread on Twitter asking women what we would do differently if men had a curfew? Not hold our keys between our knuckles in case we need a weapon? Does that even work? I have pepper spray. Not decide which streets to walk down when running at night based on the right traffic and lighting to reduce the possibility of assault? Leave your drink on the table while going to the bathroom at a party without worrying about what someone might slip into it. Turn my music up when running on a trail without cars so I wouldn't have to worry about being 100% alert all the time. The men all exchanged awkward glances with one another, in between sympathetic or worried glances with their significant others. Amber watched Phil, who lived next door to her, open his mouth partway and then close it clearly deciding whether to say something. She'd seen that expression before. It was the expression of a man who wanted to participate, knew maybe he shouldn't, and in the end would succumb to his desire to correct what he believed to be a fatal knowledge gap among the group. I totally understand what you're all going through, he said, 
I felt that way when hiking in Yosemite, worried about bears. Um, WTF? Most of the women at the table looked too tired to argue. What was the point, anyway? Still, they had a silent conversation with their expressions. One of them had to say something, right? One of the women, an attorney who lived across the street from Amber, accepted her position as their spokesperson. I've been hiking in Yosemite, too, she said. I have to say that being afraid that a bear might feel threatened and attack you, in a rare setting that you don't enter every day, is different from knowing that in your day-to-day -day life, there are people who actually have the malicious intention of raping you. I don't think it's that different, Phil persisted. Aren't most sexual assaults by someone you know? So the chance of something happening on the street with a stranger is pretty low. All the tips Amber had heard in self-defense class ran through her head. Be careful walking by cars where someone could emerge from under to grab you. If a stranger comes near you, hold your hands up in defensive position, and, by God, don't ever let a threat come behind you. Keep turning your body around if you need to so that your back is never facing the threat. If you do get assaulted, do anything, even bite, so you don't get thrown into a car. Remember these rules. Repeat these to yourself. These were part of her daily reality, but not Phil's. Amber never heard the older generations of women complain about these things. They passed down advice and held their handbags to their side. Her generation didn't want to accept the state of the world, like the fact that you had to hold your handbags that way in the first place. In the workplace, you didn't have to worry about whether someone was going to slip something in your coffee or if a potential perpetrator was hiding behind a corner, most of the time anyway. But you still had to be constantly on your guard, wondering if you'd couched an assertive statement in the right amount of bubble wrap niceness so that you weren't considered aggressive or bitchy, wondering how to handle being treated differently by people, including women, who swore up and down that they didn't see gender. That defensive posture whether at work or while walking down the street, was simply exhausting. Amber wondered how much of women's mental energy was expended responding to, or avoiding, these day-to-day -day challenges, and how much happier, and even more productive, they'd be if they weren't so occupied. Work came with challenges for everybody, but women, and other historically marginalized groups, had an extra layer of challenges, large and small. The group moved on to discussing a movie they had all recently seen, but Amber's mind went back to her job and whether or not it was time to leave. Don't let Leland drive you out, she imagined her grandmother saying. It wasn't just Leland, though. She thought about the metaphor of mosquito bites, which was often used to describe the challenge of microaggressions. The idea is that one single mosquito bite isn't a big deal. So maybe you feel frustrated because someone says an innocuous comment about women, or someone made you take notes at a meeting even as a senior leader. None of that is harmful on its own. Like one mosquito bite, it's a vague irritation. Maybe you want to scratch at it. Maybe it leaves a scar, maybe not. You just wish it weren't there. But over time, imagine those mosquito bites accumulating. It's gone from vague irritation to something more harmful. The thousand everyday cuts added up.
Well, welcome back, everyone. We are here now with my good friend, Dr. Hong Depp. She is a board-certified psychologist who specializes in global mental health and particularly working with BIPOC and LGBTQ communities. Hong, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Well, the excerpt we just listened to was actually inspired by a thread I saw once on Twitter, and it was about the extra layer of processing that women have to do, whether you're out for a run or walking home, the constant being on our guards and, and kind of scanning for threats around us. And when I saw the discussion on Twitter, I thought, wow, that's actually really true at work, too, that there's just this extra layer of processing. So while we're doing our jobs and all that our jobs require, we also have these inner narratives in our heads about the biases and the barriers that we face at work. And that can be questions that we ask ourselves, like, why am I always being asked to take the notes at the meetings? And can I push back on that? Or it might be we've said something that we realize that if a man said that, it would be perceived as confident. But as a woman, we're wondering, did I couch that statement enough to not be seen as bitchy? So, Hong, I know this is something you and I have discussed a lot, this inner narrative, this mental chatter that everyone has, but that can be especially challenged for women and people of color. And I find this so hard to think about because sometimes it's absolutely necessary. The reality is that for women and people of color, we need that mental chatter, that often we have to be on our guards in a different way due to the biases and the barriers that we face, but also that sometimes that mental chatter is unproductive, that it leads to us questioning ourselves when we shouldn't. And so really, Hong, I'm just excited to have you here with us, your perspective as a psychologist and as a therapist in a few areas. First, how this chatter is totally normal and sometimes needed, but also when it's not productive, how do we stop that mental chatter in its tracks? So Hong, let's begin with your reaction to hearing this scene from Beyond Leaning In. Yeah, I mean, I've been a psychologist now for, gosh, almost 15 years. And after so many years of working with so many clients, it's just funny knowing the different thought bubbles I think we all have you know, over our heads as we're interacting, you know, in a conversation that there's the conversation being had, and then there's the conversation in each of our heads and the projections, right, that that we put onto others and are the interpretations that we have of what others say based on where we are in our lives. It's like this parallel processing. You're, you're trying to focus on the actual conversation you're having, and then there's that chatter that's going on in your head. And then I know for definitely marginalized communities that that chatter is much louder and that oftentimes that's what leads to just additional fatigue and limited bandwidth because you're constantly attending to that chatter. I love that phrase, mental chatter. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned that a lot of people don't realize it's going on in their heads because if you're in that situation, it's probably all you've ever known. Definitely. I think, you know, even for myself, right? I think as, as soon as I started to learn more about cognitive behavioral therapy and understanding more about my thoughts, because I don't know, I think growing up, I was like, well, I'm a pretty smart person. So if I have a thought, that thought must be true, right? But I think really the older we get and the more I know about psychology, it's more like, mm, no, don't believe everything or most things your brain says, because most of the time it's going through these different filters and different schemas, you know, based on family, upbringing, trauma, et cetera. So how do we separate out between the mental chatter that is potentially self-doubt or internalized bias and that actually isn't correct? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think it's something that takes some time to 
understand and to sit with yourself to really sort out, okay, what is that chatter that's just that same kind of nagging voice? <laughs> you know, I, I usually what I ask clients is it's that voice that doesn't really have anything new to say. It's kind of the same storyline and the same record, you know, that you keep hearing of, oh, you're not good enough, or did you really just say that? Or nobody really cares what you say anyways. You know, that just there's certain storylines that as I work with clients, I help them really tease apart what's useful that we want to keep in mind, right? As we are, even right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm like, all right, there are certain key things I want to keep in mind as I'm talking, but then there's also, I can hear my chatter as I'm talking to you of being like, okay, well, don't speak so fast or don't do certain things. And so I think I'm recognizing right now live as I'm doing this with you, that that chatter is always there. And, you know, even little things are just like, oh, are you really an expert in psychology? You know, even after all these years, but I think now I'm able to own it and to be able to be like, okay, that's just my chatter. And that's been around to protect me but it no longer protects me. It actually prevents me from really thriving and being able to share my voice. Can you talk a little more about how the chatter can protect us? So I work from a lot of this concept called internal family systems, where basically we have different parts of ourselves and they have come out as a result to protect kind of like our, our wounded child. Some of our you know, especially during pivotal moments in our childhood where maybe, you know, kids are very precocious, right? They spoke out, but their parents or a teacher, somebody maybe, you know, admonished them or chastised them or whatnot. And so in a way, we have all learned sort of how to behave and navigate through the world and that we're always trying to please others. And part of it is as a way to survive. Our brains are programmed for survival, not actually for happiness. So it's always scanning the environment, looking for negativity. And so I think that in terms of the chatter, it has developed as a manager to sort of protect you, protect us from situations that might be threatening. It's interesting. It makes me think about the experiences that women have earlier in their careers and then how that might contribute to the chatter across their careers. So let's say I'm a recent college graduate who just entered the workplace and Maybe I've been in a few meetings where I voiced an idea and no one listened. And then a man voiced the idea and that person was listened to. So the chatter in my head is processing that and kind of wondering, am I imagining it or is this bias? And so that chatter is probably helpful because it can help me realize I'm not imagining it. So I'm not internalizing the bias, but then the chatter could turn into something not helpful if it leads me to not apply for a particular job that's come up because it's led me to question myself? Oh, totally. Yeah, exactly. So I think you can see where it gets a little confusing. And some people are like, do I have multiple personalities or dissociative identity disorder? I'm like, no, we all have these multiple cells within us. And part of this is using a lot of mindfulness is really sitting in when you, we are able to sit with ourselves about scrolling through Instagram or distracting ourselves with certain things that we're actually able to really hear and see certain patterns, you know, that come up. And then you can just imagine for maybe for somebody who, you know, has never really examined it, you know, because I think for myself too, I don't mind sharing that. Yeah, early on in my career as a psychologist, I had a lot of male supervisors, you know, tell me that I was a poor writer. And basically one supervisor told me I should take English classes um, and basic writing, you know, classes and asked me if English was my first language, which it isn't. And it really, yeah, it really, really 
crushed my self-esteem. And so for the longest time, I thought I was a bad writer. And I just limited myself from different situations where someone asked me to write something and I would just you know, immediately punt it off to somebody else or to do like, oh, can we just do a collaboration or a group project? Is that something that, because I had internalized that feedback as something that was me. And then what happens is then we go looking, unfortunately, our brains will go looking for experiences and things to kind of confirm certain negative beliefs about ourselves. And so maybe it was then with my anxiety or fears that would just you know, when you're scared, you don't really perform at your best. And so there probably were times too, where with that kind of constant chatter in my head, I probably didn't perform at my best or or write at my best, which then just confirmed that storyline that I wasn't a good writer. And that's how internalized bias works, which I know is also connected to imposter syndrome. Oh, totally. (laughs) Yeah. We'd love to hear a little bit more about how you think about imposter syndrome and talk to your clients about it. Oh my gosh, it is uh, it is a beast. I mean, impo- and then the ironic part is that the higher level you get in education or accolade, it's like the more amazing your CV is, is almost what I find is like the more imposter syndrome you have. And that it really cuts across the board, but unfortunately more for women in marginalized communities, you know, than for men. Though I have met, you know, some men who do have it, but definitely I would say the big bulk is, you know, for women in in marginalized communities, because it's just a sense of, you know, and working with my clients of they're going to find out about me. Like I, I, you know, the jig's going to be up soon. I've been able to lie to everyone or everyone has just, you know, had been able to see the best part of me, this filtered version of me. But if they really saw the true me, that then I would be fired or I wouldn't get this job or I wouldn't get this opportunity, you know, or whatnot. And, and, and it is, it becomes this vicious cycle where then what my clients and, you know, what I see is then people want to achieve even more, but then by achieving even more, because they have this belief of, okay, if I get more letters after my name, if I get certain things, if I publish this book, then I'll feel better. Then I'll really feel accomplished. But then what happens is then they, they do do that. And then it leads to this further imposter syndrome. So it's this constant sort of chasing of the tail. And it really erodes at someone's you know, self-esteem and really believing that I have to keep at this pace in order to really be respected, you know, in my field and that of really never feeling, you know, good enough because it's always waiting for that external validation. I really like that chasing your tail metaphor. It's that idea of this kind of endless cycle. So tell folks a little bit more about cognitive behavioral therapy. How does First of all, what is it and how does it help with that kind of inner narrative that leads to imposter syndrome? Yeah, so cognitive behavioral therapy is a school of psychology that believes that our cognition, so our thoughts, really cause a lot of our suffering. I mean, obviously, there are many schools of thoughts, and I work from an integrative approach, but I really like using CBT with a lot of my sort of intellectualizers who, you know, they're all in their brains. So basically, the idea is if you look at a triangle, And that the top part is our cognitions, our thoughts, right? And throughout a day, we have between like 60 to 80,000 thoughts in a day. Can you believe that? 
What percentage do you think, Melanie, of those thoughts are positive? Out of 60 to 80,000 thoughts, how many do you think are positive? Oh, probably not that many, right? If, I don't know, a few, a few hundred. <laughs> yeah, I don't actually know how they measured it. Uh, I should look back at my research. But um, out of 60 to 80,000 thoughts that we have, they say only 20% of it is positive. And that most of it isn't new. Like a lot, we really don't have that many new thoughts. It's like the same record that kind of like spins over and over again, right? So imagine, okay, so those are our cognitions, our thoughts. So they say our thoughts impact our feelings, right? Which are emotions, our state of being. And then our feelings impact our behaviors, Mm -hmm. right? And then it kind of goes back, then our behaviors further impact our thoughts, And again, I I don't because I think a lot of people will then argue, well, like, okay, are we just supposed to have like positive thoughts all the time? You know, because I think we are living in a culture of toxic positivity, too, in terms of like positive vibes only, you know, whatnot. And so I think, you know, if we were to go back and I were to work with a client on this, you know, the thought isn't just like, oh, yeah, I'm the best ever and I deserve every promotion. No, like that's like swinging to the other end of the pendulum. Like I was like, oh, what's a more realistic thought? Because I think. Two, I never want to, part of this is you have to believe the thought, right? Mm -hmm. So I really work with clients kind of on a stepwise basis. You're like, what's a thought that's just a little more believable, but is leading more towards a positive side? It sounds like what we're saying is separating out the action from the sense of self-identity that not getting the promotion doesn't mean that I'm worthless. It means I didn't get the promotion. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And so I think that's something that for a lot of folks, it's really hard to do is because we are our identities, right, are so fused to our professional selves, our accomplishments, you know, whatnot. So a lot of my work, too, is really thinking about how to build up certain other identities and certain other sense of self. Because I think so often, too, if we have basically all our eggs in one basket in terms of our professional identity, then it is going to feel pretty crushing if, you know, we're not progressing or advancing at the pace that we want to. It sounds like probably nobody is immune to this kind of mental chatter. Can you talk a little bit about what role different traumas play into it? I think for some folks, when they think of trauma, they think of war or famine or poverty. But I mean, there's I think trauma is, again, on a spectrum where the trauma of childhood abuse, neglect, racial trauma, I think intergenerational trauma, I think being part of marginalized community. I mean, I don't think any of us like get through life without some kind of trauma. Can you talk more about racial trauma and being part of marginalized communities? Definitely. I mean, as Asian American women in this day and age with everything going on recently, I and, you know, just being part of and having friends going through Black Lives Matter. I mean, yeah, I think of looking at like racial trauma, you know, there's some research showing that racial trauma is probably one of the greatest traumas an individual could go through because it is oppressive and it is something you cannot escape. It is, you know, you wake up from the minute you wake up and you step out your door. I mean, who, you know, the way is how we interact, you know, in the world and navigate the world. And it's one of those things where, you know, immediately when I step out the door, people see me, you know, for sort of my phenotype, right? And, and what I look and have these different projections onto me. But I think in working with my clients, you know, with racial trauma, and especially, you know, during this past year, I mean, it's been something that is so insipid and intrepid and that 
they didn't realize permeated through so many parts of their lives. And that so much of the mental chatter of I'm not good enough is also related to their skin color because whether implicitly or explicitly that they've been, they've had experiences where they were chosen because of their skin color, because of the way they looked, you know, or whatnot, their gender identity. I mean, it's, you know, it's everything. And so I, I think it's one of those things that as I've been doing my own work, of examining my own internalized racism and oppression and how I limit myself because of the limits that the world has put up on me. It's been really sobering to do my own work and then to help my clients see, oh, how much of their mental health symptoms, and again, not to say that anxiety and depression and trauma isn't real, but how much of that is tied to the chronic and longitudinal aspect of, you know, racial trauma, especially when it's been something that's just been this undercurrent throughout most of my clients' lives without ever realizing and naming it for what it is. And it just, and so I think that's what I see that takes up a lot of mental spaces, you know, and especially for women being like, okay, and it could be both and, right? Both like a positive where, oh, I got that promotion, but was it because, you know, they needed somebody, like they needed a woman of color to fit that or uh, fit that role? Or was it because of merit? You know, and I think that's like the hard part, I think, in terms of that racial trauma and that mental chatter every day is you're just constantly questioning yourself and your skills. I know that for me, it's like, oh, well, there can only be room for one Asian woman or one, you know, woman of color in this specific internship or something like that. And so if somebody else got it, then I wouldn't be able to get it. I think it's that scarcity mentality of just like, if I'm not constantly hustling and doing certain things, that then there's not going to be space or room for me. And that's what I see from a lot of my clients too. So one thing I've been kind of mulling over a lot is how do we help folks with those kinds of emotions when it comes to these sorts of difficult topics? I think as a society, we're not very good with emotions. And I, I feel like we should all go back to preschool and, and really look at our feelings wheel. Yes, um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because I, when I work with kids, you know, it really is pretty basic. And so often what we do is we suppress you know, these emotions and that especially if kids are angry, I think a lot of times for some parents, they don't really know what to do with anger. And so they're like, well, don't be angry or they get punished, you know, for being angry. So it sends a message, right? That certain emotions are bad and certain emotions are good. And so I think that what happens then as we grow up, right? And is that we do, we categorize certain emotions and we don't allow ourselves to fully feel these emotions and that emotions really start off physiologically too. So when I work with kids, I actually have them color in this sort of gender neutral gingerbread person and really being like, okay, like when you feel anger, like, you know, what does it feel like? Describe it to me. And where do you feel it? And what color is it? So we really just put words and are really able to label it somatically. Um, Because I think we all know, once we actually get in touch with our bodies, like we all know where or how certain emotions feel in our body. But so often we're so disconnected from our bodies as well that we don't realize that, oh, that tightness in my stomach is fear. 
and that fear has been there, you know, for a while, but instead we intellectualize and we're like, well, I, I shouldn't be afraid. Like this isn't that scary or, you know, whatever it is. And so I think going back kind of tying it into, you know, the individual feelings is that, yeah, if we've grown up in a society in a world that's told us like certain feelings are intolerable and that, you know, we're, we're not, we've avoided, right. And numbed out from certain emotions, which then I think is another part of that potentially can lead to different numbing out behaviors, addictive behaviors, you know, that then we're never really dealing and understanding our emotions and just what they feel like. And so often what I believe is the only way to really experience an emotion is to like feel it fully and that these emotions are just signposts. They're just, you know, like anger is just a signpost that like a boundary has been violated. Right. So it's just sending us a message. And what is it? Fear, you know, it's just a signpost that there, you know, something unknown. Right. But I think what happens is when we suppress these emotions, we don't allow these emotions, then it just kind of builds on, you know, each other. So you can imagine then all of, you know, the people in the office room, you know, during a meeting, we're all there, right? We're big kids and our big kid bodies, but still with these unprocessed emotions. And that so often, you know, if someone doesn't have their own awareness, you know, of what's going on and really being like, oh, wow, like that comment that so-and-so made, you know, really angered me, but they, you know, suppress it or that maybe for some folks, they have never then found like a very healthy way, you know, to express their anger that it's just, it's a whole bunch of bubbling. I just imagine just a whole bunch of bubbling emotions all in a room. So then constantly people are feeling unheard and not seen and like not validated. Yeah, fear is the one. I'm glad you said that because that's the one I feel like I've noticed the most in organizational settings, whether organizations where I've worked or ones I've consulted with, is that any time a group of people is discussing some kind of change that needs to happen, and that might be a new policy related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, it might just be a future strategy. And right now we live in this world of rapid change. And yet, the change leads to a very natural fear in the room. And because of that fear, people can't engage with the discussion. And they come up with every single kind of intellectualized, rational reason why they disagree with the change, rather than just acknowledging that there's this fear. Definitely, definitely. And I think especially for, you know, I'm going to make a generalization here, but especially for a lot of men that they are afraid of feeling fear because of also the messages from society that a quote unquote real man doesn't feel fear, right? Mm -hmm. Or Or doesn't feel feelings. It doesn't feel, yeah, doesn't feel feelings in general, right? But I think that so often if you can just recognize and accept, and I think part of this, and I work from this other type of therapy called acceptance commitment therapy as well, which comes from a lot of mindfulness is just accepting all the emotions that come up and naming it for what it is being like, Oh, wow, interesting. That that provoked fear, you know, in me and being curious. I think what I encourage my clients is like, instead of judging and labeling your feelings, be curious about your feelings. Right. And, and, but that requires a little bit of diffusion or kind of standing back and observing your thoughts. But so often we're so fused with our thoughts that we think all our thoughts are us, but our thoughts are just like our monkey mind. That's just kind of running around. And again, like I said, we're wired for survival, not for happiness. So it's constantly, right? Because it's like, oh my gosh, 
they're implementing a new policy. Like, what if this policy means that I don't like learn, you know, this program really quick enough and I don't learn this program quick enough, then this youngin's going to come in and they're going to take my job. And if they take my job, then I'm going to like, you know, not be able to get a new one. And then basically I'm going to live under a bridge. Right? I mean, I think so often, like there's a lot of catastrophizers right out there. And so when I'm able to break it down and be like, okay, so from this new policy, you have gone to living under a bridge. You know, I think there are like many, many steps in between a new policy being implemented and like living under a bridge, right? But I think for most people, they don't even realize like that's where they've gone to, right? If at the end of the day, it's like we're pretty basic animals. We want to, we want to make sure we're, we're fed. We want to make sure we have a roof over our head, and we want to make sure we're taking care of our young or the the people around us, right? So if I can, like, I usually try to help my clients be like, all right. And really focusing, right, on, on like the day and being mindful of like, okay, tonight you're going to come home and you have a roof over your head. Like you're right now, you're projecting many, many years or even an irrational thought. So really helping folks to break that down and seeing that that thought doesn't mean like they're an idiot or there's something wrong with them. We all have these thoughts. And if we actually just stopped and like laughed at it, like all the time, like I'm just like laughing at my brain because it just tells me things all throughout the day that are like hilarious, you know, but it takes time to, to really be able to have that compassion too, right. To be like, Oh yeah, this is just my brain. My brain obviously has helped me get a doctorate and do all these cool things, but sometimes it's not as helpful. So when can I listen to it? And when can I not? And there's so much great work on difficult conversations, for example, how to get along with your colleagues. It's interesting because so much of the conflict we're talking about here is actually inner conflict. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, have you heard of using nonviolent communication? So it's this really great idea of it's because it's basically just owning your feelings, right? Saying I feel right instead of you are this, right? Just saying I feel lonely or I feel isolated when, you know, Melanie, you and so and so went to lunch and didn't invite me. Right. Instead of being like, you're always excluding me or, you know, whatever, you know, it is. Right. Which, by the way, I, I don't think that way of you at all. <laughs> and so but I think it really is speaking from an I perspective. But that requires my vulnerability right, to share with you. Hey, like this is how I feel and to own it. And, and I think but part of this is also then having compassion with myself, speaking to myself in a nonviolent way, right? To being like, oh, okay, Hong, like, it's okay that you feel lonely that like Melanie didn't invite you to lunch. Like, yeah, of course, we all want to be accepted, right? Because if we go back to our tribe mentality, like back in the day, like if I, I wasn't accepted in my tribe, I was a goner, right? You couldn't just go up to another tribe and be like, hey, guys, right? They'd like shoot bows and arrows at you from afar. And so we've evolved, but we haven't evolved that much. And that really, when you come down to it, yeah, it's this need to be seen, to be loved, to be accepted, you know, by others. And if we can just, I don't know, everyone, if everyone can just repeat kindergarten, you know, and just really kind of get some basic emotional awareness, um, I just think we'd be a lot better off. That reminds me of that. Was it a poster or a book when we were kids that was circulating around the all I needed to know about life I learned in kindergarten? Oh, totally. Right. Like, come on, everyone. Keep your hands and feet to yourself. Well, one final question is when you think about having read Beyond Leaning in, what's one thing that you'll think about or do differently moving forward? I really, really enjoyed the book and not just because it was written by you, but it really made me think about a lot of things. I think I saw myself in all the characters, you know, and there wasn't really any bad, you know, 
character. There's like no villains. I mean, I think we're, we're really, I really do believe, you know, we're all trying our best that <laughs> the best looks different, you know, to every, every day and to each person. But I think part of this is, yeah, like I always say, like doing our own work, you know, keeping our side of the street clean <laughs> before we, you know, expect others to do it. So I think for myself, having gone through grad school, gosh, like 15 years ago now or something like that, I think there are certain things I accepted because I thought that was part of just the path to becoming like a doctor or psychologist. And those are the dues I had to pay. But now I think I'm just like, no, <laughs> like, why? Why does why is that have to do I have to pay? That was a system, a patriarchal system, right? The white ivory tower kind of mentality that was also passed down by folks who are no longer alive. So I think really kind of challenging status quo. So I thank you for that. Well, thanks again. Thank you. I was just listening to the conversation between you, Melanie, and Hong. One of the things that really stuck out to me is how powerful a novel is for helping us understand this mental chatter of those around us. I'm a person who's really observant, so I'm always thinking, what is that person thinking? What are they not saying? I guess this relates to last week's episode when we talked about biting your tongue. But I thought about how powerful the novel is because it takes us into that inner monologue. The role or job of the author is to help the reader to actually understand what the character is thinking. It's that interiority that's so powerful in a novel. So I can immediately, even in the excerpt we heard today, get a sense for what Amber is thinking, what's running through her head, even as Phil, the male character, is talking. It feels like it's a way for me to actually explore what have felt like some challenging conversations that might have happened in the workplace where I'm left guessing and I'm not actually sure what the other people in the room have to say. I'll put a link in the show notes. One thing that I found really interesting is there's actually research by a number of psychologists talking about this very thing, which is how fiction can help build empathy because it gives readers access to interiority. In fact, studies show that not every kind of fiction can help build empathy, that genre fiction, say detective novels or crime novels, they're usually very focused on plot. You know what happens to people. You don't know what's going on inside their heads. Versus what folks call literary fiction, which is really about that interiority, that running interior monologue, that's what can allow readers to really get in other people's minds. One of my hopes with Beyond Leading In was actually to do a little bit of the emotional labor that women often find themselves doing when they have to explain that mental chatter, when they have to explain why the small slights actually make a difference. As I was interviewing women for this book, they often said that it was actually hard to explain to male partners or friends or colleagues what mental chatter looks like, and it was exhausting to do so. And to me, the benefit of a novel, here's another benefit that fiction really can provide, is that so many of the gender gaps we face now aren't always the big events, the big challenges. They are this accumulation of small slights that add up and that build off on one another. And through a novel, my hope was that you can see the cumulative effect of a lot of small slights on a sympathetic set of characters. That's why I love the analogy of microaggressions to mosquito bites, that one on its own might not be a big deal, but if you've got hundreds of mosquito bites. At one point, I actually was going to title the book A Thousand Everyday Cuts because 
to me, that's the experience of microaggressions. We actually had that conversation recently with a group of senior leaders in my workplace where we're trying to say, is it the big moments of obvious discrimination that are the worst? Or is it actually these moments of microaggression and everyday cuts? And I don't think it's an either or. I think everyone agrees that blatant discrimination is wrong. But in some ways, because it's so blatant, something's done about it, right? There's recourse. Everyone calls it out. It's these moments that everyone's unsure and we don't necessarily have the language or the courage to acknowledge it that can create the lack of psychological safety or physical safety in the workplace for so many people. And always wondering, is it you? Did this happen to me because it happened to me? Did it happen to me because I'm a woman? Well, I hope that allowing folks to engage in a novel like Beyond Leaning End, to see this inner monologue, to think about these scenes and instances and how this is impacting both characters that they identify with as well as those that they don't, again, gives them another tool to maybe explore that and to feel that sense of connection to someone else that they aren't alone and they aren't the only individual. And I do know, and I imagine in your research and your conversations with early readers, many more organizations are trying to find the right tools and trainings and language within their companies to make it easier for people to talk about these things. I know you and I have said microaggressions may not always be the right language because that can feel very off-putting or alienating for some people, but I do appreciate the efforts that organizations are making. It's so hard to find the right language for these things. Microaggressions, unconscious biases, these are the right technical terms. And I think it's important that they are powerful terms. On the other hand, they're sometimes unproductive because people do shut down when they hear them. And if you shut down, you can't have a good experience. You can't have a good conversation. And so that's why throughout Beyond Leading In, I use mental autocompletes as we talked about a few episodes ago, or why I like using phrases like a thousand everyday cuts. Yeah, it's really helpful for me to think about how mental chatter connects to bystander intervention. So it usually, when you're in a conversation about microaggressions, they say, if you're not the one who's being aggressed upon, you're not the one feeling it, but you witness it, you should say something. And I have felt uncomfortable sometimes. Am I acknowledging the right situation? How do I? What's the right language? How do I make that? But then I thought about the mental chatter that must be happening for the person who's experiencing that moment and how they can really almost get stuck in their own heads and thoughts. Is this really happening? Why is this happening? Why is no one saying anything? And that empowered me as someone in the room to want to do my best, even if it's not perfect, to want to be able to cut through the mental conversations that we're probably all having around the table and just speak it into existence so that we can deal with it and move forward. We'll put some links in the show notes on bystander interventions trainings as well. I think that people often think of bystander interventions as things like, okay, if I'm taking public transportation and I see somebody harassing somebody else or physically threatening them, what what can I do? And there are a number of things you can do that don't necessarily include putting your body in harm's way. They can include going for help. They can include showing the person support afterwards. Uh, But actually, bystander intervention training is helpful for just day-to-day things. If you hear somebody who says something that they don't mean to be sexist or racist in the meeting, but actually comes across wrong, what do you do about it? Every single day, we're encountering things where that bystander intervention question comes up. Well, I appreciate so much having Hong come with us and share her expertise and her perspective on this episode today. I always enjoy the conversation with you, Melanie. And for all of you listeners and readers out there, we hope that you find the audiobook, the actual physical print book, or the ebook and join us for a future episode. We'll be back with you for episode six. I think it is unbelievable how quick they're going, but hope you catch up on all the past ones you may have missed and we'll see you in an episode soon. 
Thank you all for listening. I'm Mel Nuho, author of Beyond Leaning In. Please buy the book on Amazon or through www.beyondleaningin.com where you can contact us and also learn more about the broader Beyond Leaning In conversation and community. This podcast is produced by Katie Sunku Wood at Studio Pod Media. Edits were made by Noda Lab. Music is by Mountain House. Please subscribe, rate, share, and get in touch with your ideas. Thank you.